0: Hi there! Thanks for stopping by.
1: My name is Josh. This is Dharma Punks New York, and a uh, Tuesday class. And a um, couple of announcements on uh, May Sunday, May twenty second. We'll be doing one of our gatherings in person at um, Center Yoga on East 23rd Street, right off of uh, Park Avenue and um, our good friends there. And so at 12 to 1.30, there'll be a yoga class with our friend Casper, which you can attend, that's optional. And then at two to five, we'll be doing our Dharma Punks New York event And um, yeah, so feel invited. The information will be up on our website and on the Center Yoga website. On September 1st to September 5th, we're having a retreat, at garrison institute. And that information is posted at this point. And we've already had a nice amount of registrations. Uh, So I hope you'll consider that. That'll be with our good friend, Jessica Morey, who's a terrific teacher, and Kathy Cherry, and it will be um, just uh, from the first to Labor Day, the fifth. And uh, it's really easy to get to Garrison. You just jump on Metro North and you're there and pretty much takes you almost to the front door, a nice little walk through the woods and you're there. And uh, yeah, we've loved doing our last six or seven retreats at Garrison Institute. It's a beautiful center right over the Hudson. So uh, if you'd like to support my work, everything I do, uh, the counseling and the teaching is by donation only. So the Venmo is Dharmapunks with an XNYC and the PayPal button is on the website, Dharmapunks with an xnyc.com. And tonight's topic is on codependency. It's a topic that many people have over the years asked that I give a talk. And as I'll explain, I have a little hesitancy over the term codependency, and I'll explain why. But uh, now that it's so entered the vernacular, it's something that we may as well define in a meaningful way. And in this talk, we'll be exploring the differences between a healthy relationship and relationships that have tendencies that stifle growth, cause needless suffering and emotional dysregulation, and so forth. So jumping in, our course, Psychobiological Drive, is to establish secure connection, a sense of that there's a adult reliably available to provide us safety and a sense of protection. This is from birth. We have this core psychological, psychobiological drive. And it's for what we would call object constancy. Object constancy is the sense that even when we don't see someone or they're not directly proximal, That we have the sense that if we need someone, they would be available to us. And throughout our developmental years, having a secure base or object constancy, secure base, a sense as well that there is a reliable presence of people who can help us, alleviates abandonment, anxiety, anxiety. It regulates our nervous system and encourages exploration. It integrates all of our emotions, both positive and, and uh, difficult emotions, into a coherent self-structure. We don't feel scared of our fear or our sadness or our anger if we have a secure base. We know that the people around us can meaningfully process those feelings or can be with those feelings and help us um, down-regulate, as it were. And it makes us feel in a deep core sense of self that we deserve love and attention. And if you'd like to learn about all of the rich history of understanding the need for secure attachment. It started with the work of John Bowlby, Mary Ainsworth, and then over the years, Mary Main, Marilyn sir Dan Siegel, Alan Shore, Amre Gilliath, Matthew Lieberman, Daniel P. Brown at Harvard, Peter Fanaghi at, uh, I think, Tavistock. Some of the most important psychologists of our day all point to this direction of the need for a secure base for optimum functioning in the world. And a secure base is most likely to be established by four qualities. One, again, someone who's reliably available. Two, someone who's emotionally attentive. Three, someone who is soothing so that when we're in distress, our emotions are escalated, they can help us through their touch, their nonverbal cues, their words of reassurance that things will, in the long term, be okay. And for someone who expresses delight at us, someone who beams and lights up or looks happy to see us. And in childhood, a lot of this is conveyed by a uh, parent who, when the child is upset or scared or frustrated or uh, protesting, a parent remains calm and can convey that everything will be okay. And that's known also as marking. The parent becomes aware of the child's emotions, mirrors them, but then marks that everything's going to be okay. I'm not upset I'll I'll help you so um, when the parent conveys that they're okay that their emotions are not in any way uh, activated by the child's fears or angers or frustrations there's a sense of security in the world. And this in turn in our adult life turns into what's called interdependency. And that's a hallmark of healthy adult relationships. Interdependency means there's a mutuality where two people or more in a relationship each provide and receive support care, attention, encouragement. So generally in a healthy couple, when one person is upset or overwhelmed or lonely, the other partner is available, listens, is soothing, but their emotions are not pulled out of whack by their partners. They can the person who's not activated can remain emotionally calm or at least not activated because their partner is activated. And that's the hallmark of interdependency. When we need someone, they're available. When they need someone, we're available. It's uh, a give and take, it's balanced. It's not one person always dysregulated and the other person always providing support or something like that. So, these skills to be in a healthy relationship are learned implicitly by observing our parents and the adults around us in childhood, as well as the relationships we have with our caregivers. So, if we're in environments where adults show us how to be, to stay empathetic, but not Agitated or distressed by other people's emotions, we learn that um, in adult relationships, when one partner is upset, again the their partner listens, asks how they can be of help, and um, but their emotions remain regulated. Uh, the Buddha has a wonderful series of teachings on the mutuality of relationships, and it's defined in his teachings on mita, or close companions, friends, partners. And he says, a friend or a partner reveals their secrets to to you, and keeps your secrets safe. When misfortunes strike, they don't turn their back or look down on you, especially while you're struggling. And he goes on in many suttas to say, when we have an admirable companion, it doesn't have to be a relationship partner, it can just be a friend or uh, an ally, therapist, sponsor. With an admirable compassion, we can listen, we can talk when it's our time to talk and speak wisely. And it's easier to put aside, he says, unskillful ideas and harmful emotions that cause suffering. So he's acknowledging again what we now know today, the benefits of a secure base with uh, at least another, you know, generally we need uh, to function really well, a small group of emotion co-regulators, people we can turn to for support, and then we can support them in turn. Now, if some of the hallmarks of security aren't met in childhood, if a child's sequentially or as a pattern neglected, in turn, in time, they'll become overly self-reliant and they'll exhibit avoidant behaviors. They'll be exploratory in that they'll be interested in travel and learning new skills and uh, getting into new situations, but they won't process their emotions very well. They'll tend to compartmentalize, and they tend to have dismissive uh, patterns of attachment. They don't really look for real intimacy. Abused, abused children will over rely on dissociation, checking out uh, from the, their experience to survive. And by adult life, they'll be prone to extreme uh, emotions that uh, that are uh, that vary wildly. Their nervous systems will not be settled. They'll be prone to self-harm, uh, very often substance dependency, and in many cases, cluster B personality disorders, and so on and so forth. So, uh, But we're not talking about that; those topics tonight. We're actually talking about uh, the long-term outcome, very often, of what one would call an enmeshed Childhood enmeshment is when the parents are emotionally dysregulated by each other's uh, states of being or by their children's states of being. In other words, the parent becomes distressed when the child is distressed. If the child or their the uh, husband is anxious, the wife becomes anxious. If the wife is anxious, then the husband becomes anxious, and there's a very or if the wife becomes upset and angry, then the husband does or the husband becomes upset and then so does the wife. And if the child becomes angry, then everybody in the family becomes angry. And there's also a blurred sense of very often identities, parents' sense of success or failure is based overly on their children's achievements. And sometimes the parent will rely on the child for emotional support and will share adult issues, including in the worst case, parents will talk, will triangulate the child, which means in other words, rather than talking directly to their partner, will talk to their child about their partner, enlisting the child as a kind of um, uh, go-between and also trying to turn their child against their other parent. Of course, all of this is extremely destabilizing. It blurs boundaries. It, it fuses identities. Uh, very often in mesh families, there'll be an attempt to manipulate or direct the child's thoughts. Um, and the child sometimes will even feel like they're the best friend of their parent. Uh, given special privileges that no child should have. So the long-term result of parents who are caregivers who are not capable on a reliable basis of maintaining a secure adult predisposition where they are available, interested, supportive, but not completely pulled out of balance by either their child's emotion or by their parents' emotion leads to an enmeshed child. And that child will very often grow up to develop unhealthy behaviors and relationships. They'll struggle to develop any healthy sense of self, which means certain emotions, they'll withhold until it's too late, then it'll become, it'll come out of them in this explosive, uncontrolled manner. Their emotions will be, as I said, heightened or sometimes blocked. Uh, Exploration will often of the world, developing new skills will be avoided. and But when it it comes to their partners, there's very often a lack of mutuality or balance. Codependency doesn't mean we're reliant on another. It means that we are predisposed to enmeshed relationships where there's a lot of emotion dysregulation and where support isn't mutual. I'll say that again. Codependency doesn't mean that we rely or that at times we're it, it, we can be dependent on someone for a period of time, but a codependent relationship is one that's enmeshed where overall both partners are not capable of maintaining with each other uh, uh, a state where their nervous systems are uh, in the the sort of um, Window of tolerance, where they they can maintain long periods of being relaxed, and certainly in codependent relationships, the support, the attention, isn't mutual. There's an imbalance where one person's needs are very often highlighted, while the other's needs go abandoned or ignored, and um, where the attention. And the care and the delight in each other isn't mutual. And over time, one or both partners' skills and capabilities actually atrophy. They, they lose the ability to function on their own when they need to. A classic example of a codependent relationship is one where one person is an addict or chronically depressed, and their partner, on the other hand, becomes a caregiver who's also the functional member of the dyad. So the caregiver over time begins to actually feel safer in their role. And they seek this predictable role where they sacrifice their relationships outside Uh, They no longer individuate, they stop uh, developing their own skills, they stop pursuing their own goals. Um, And caregivers that are chronically thrust into this role over time developed a great need for control. Uh, and setting boundaries then risks that sense of control that they want over time, because they're dealing with the finances, um, all any thing that like travel arrangements, doing basic household uh, uh, responsibilities, uh, taking care of. Making phone calls and appointments. When this grows, um, there's this, the caregiver becomes addicted to this sense of having everything under their control. And so stepping back, setting boundaries, and not performing the caregiver role over time feels scary. On the other hand, the addict or the chronically depressed partner becomes enabled and if they even do bother to take any steps to address the situation, they'll be greeted with skepticism by the caregiver in the relationship. they'll feel the scare- the caregiver will feel well we've seen this before, nothing comes of it. but really also the caregiver is actively without realizing it discouraging the addict or the depressed or the one who's enabled not to to take steps forward. So uh, one of the key, if there's any emotional key to understanding when there's an imbalance in a relationship or when something needs to be addressed is, of course, when there's an ongoing state of resentment in one or both partners. Resentment is a clear indication that boundaries haven't been set. We only resent really generally uh, in, in relationships the imbalances where we actually haven't stopped and said, look, There's something that is not, that doesn't feel fair, that doesn't feel uh, mutual in this relationship, that doesn't feel uh, appropriate. It's There's a sense I'm feeling overburdened and I need to step back and I need there to be more support from you in this area. When boundaries are set in relationships, there's very little resentment that lingers. Um, if there is resentment and it generally means, and boundaries have been set, it generally means it's resentment from a previous or earlier stages in a relationship, but uh, generally healthy boundaries and pursuing one's needs are the most efficient way to reduce this ongoing sense sense of victimization and this sense of unfairness. Now, before we go into that a little bit deeper, I should also note that narcissists, unfortunately, are magnets for the codependent, Um, not just addicts or people who are chronically depressed, but also people with Significant personality disorders, such as narcissists and sociopaths, sometimes even, will be drawn to those who will offer attention but but you know don't expect to get it back. Uh, and unfortunately, codependents, people who grew up in enmeshed family systems, um who are used to battle zones from their childhood will linger in toxic relationships and not know when to separate. Um, And so the active uh, codependent will in a sense become manipulative, controlling, but the passive one will just simply turn into a victim or martyr and will always be overly giving, fixing, trying to make it work, despite the fact that they're in a relationship with someone who's simply using them just for attention, but has very little empathy. And um, another form of unhealthy relationships, which I won't talk too much about, but there's also what I call fused couples. Fused couples are two people that have anxious attachment, an incomplete sense of self and a real fear of separation and anxiety about abandonment. And so both collaborate unconsciously to reduce this anxiety by bisolating. Bisolating means they isolate together and they become obsessed with the other, and any movement apart or developing skills outside of the relationship becomes threatening. Now, these relationships are less uneven, but still the fact that there's a sense of mutuality, it limits growth, and there's no boundaries, and there's no a uh, sense of a complete self where one person feels that they know what they really need and want in life. So, fused couples to me are different than codependent. See, in relationships, because fused couples are just both anxious and prone to a fear of autonomy, but codependent relationships are people who are. Uh, one, not in mutual relationships, where the relationships are imbalanced and where there's one partner who's putting in a great deal amount of uh, effort and control. The other partner has essentially become uh, more and more enabled. Uh, And certainly both couples over time escalate each other's emotions rather than regulate each other's emotions. So, I hope some of that is clear enough. Um, If not, I'll be happy to parse it out when we have the uh, questions. I'd like to go on to some of the solutions. Uh, When couples do fall into any of these dynamics, of course, couples therapy is a wonderful option. I've actually, in my work, done you know, as a Buddhist pastor who offers Buddhist spiritual counseling, I've done that work. It's, I actually generally refer couples though to friends who are couples therapists. Um, But uh, it shouldn't, couples therapy shouldn't be thought of as like the way that people separate actually couples therapy can be such a valuable tool in helping two people develop mutual, loving, intimate relationships. It just creates a safe space where people learn to respond to each other's bids for attention, learn how to listen and have time to speak and talk about their needs without the fear of their partner becoming dysregulated. Um, It's a great environment. Now, if you're in a relationship that where your partner will not go into therapy. At the very least, I would personally recommend for the, especially the uh, chronic caregiver to go into Al-Anon, which is a wonderful 12-step support fellowship Um, or ACA is another group. There's also CODA, which is uh, yet another support group. So, Al-Anon, ACA, or CODA are wonderful uh, resources. And very often, taking a break to disconnect from a relationship can help break the unskillful patterns. It can bring attention back to ourselves, and so that we uh, learn to reconnect with our um, truest values. So in summary, the three most important steps forward, in addition to getting support from either couples therapy or one of the support fellowships is one setting boundaries so that a sense of mutuality and of, where one person is not dragged into uh, taking care of tasks or is being pulled away from uh, that which is important to them to developing peer connections outside of the relationship so that we can talk about our experience and get a sense of input from others and also not rely on just our partner for support, Uh, And three, reconnect with those real core needs that might have languished during a relationship. So, as I noted, when boundaries need to be set when there's a lingering degree of anger or resentments. So, in our meditation, we're going to be uh, after we develop some regulation and calmness and a secure base internally, we'll then become aware of lingering feelings of resentment. And this doesn't have to be with relationship partners. It could be with friends or it could be with coworkers, or with family members. And we're going to become aware of lingering resentments and we're going to practice then in our mind, becoming clear what boundaries uh, need to be set. And then two, as a second practice, we're going to do a visualization where we're going to uncover some of those core needs and unmet or unrealized goals that might have languished over uh, the past. So hopefully this meditation will be of benefit. So I thank you for listening to tonight's talk. I hope something in there was interesting and find a really comfortable seated position where you can just settle in for 20 minutes, 25 minutes or so. I'm going to have a sip of some coconut water and i'm going to close my eyes and just going to rotate my shoulders a bit and then pull them back and then drop them away from my ears and softening my
0: belly taking a nice smooth in-breath through my nose and then a
1: long exhalation, activating
0: the parasympathetic nervous system. Then taking this early
1: stage of the meditation to survey your body and just note, are there any involuntary muscles that are contracted that you can encourage to release? So involuntary muscle groups might be in the face, might be The jaw might be, the jaw is sometimes voluntary, sometimes involuntary. The muscles in the back, breathing into them, softening around them,
0: encouraging them to release. Even though there's the term
1: involuntary muscle groups, we can actually sometimes through conscious attention, influence those muscles to release by simply softening around them and breathing into them. Very often muscles in the lower back.
0: Just imagine letting go. See if you can feel the Alignment of the back, relax. Relaxing any tension in the legs
1: or buttocks, allowing your arms to
0: hang lifelessly from the torso. A wonderful way to develop
1: calm is to imagine if while you're breathing in, your in-breath brings attention and warmth to the eyes in the eye sockets. And there's a sense of releasing any tightness, especially at the top or the side of the micro muscles around the eyes, just release. And as you breathe out, just relax those muscles even further. So eventually the eyes feel like two balls floating in warm water no longer twitching or looking for anything. When the eyes settle, the mind settles very often as well.
0: So just breathing in warmth, soothing, breathing out,
1: relaxing, any movement in the eyes till it feels like all of the momentum of life has been released and everything in this area begins to come to a standstill. And now for a little while in silence, we'll open up our awareness
0: And you can use as an anchor to keep you present
1: rather than drifting off into the virtual
0: worlds of thought and memory and planning or simply drifting off into
1: a kind of sleep state just find an ongoing sensation in the present that you can use as an anchor to keep you from floating too far away from what's actually happening in the here and now. So an anchor could be the sounds of the world around you as they arrive without any editing approval or disapproval without visualizing what's causing a sound, just hear your soundscape as if it's a
0: musical composition. Cars, breeze, wind, people's
1: voices, the sound of appliances, whatever is in your the ambience contains, just let that be the unfolding soundtrack to keep you in the here and now. Or just use your breath, the sensations of inhalation and exhalation, perhaps in the belly of the chest or in the tip of the nose. Or you could use
0: the lights flickering behind closed eyelids as an anchor. A kind of random, chaotic,
1: flickering glitches of light and darkness behind the eyelids. Or the sensation of contact with the furniture,
0: floor, wherever you're connecting with the earth. So pick an anchor or two, and just try to relax and be as easeful as you can for a while. So for our relational practices in our meditation, hopefully you've cultivated by this point a relaxed and calm disposition. At
1: this point, open, your awareness and allow any lingering
0: resentment or feeling of unfairness stemming from any
1: relationship in your life. Again, it doesn't have to be a romantic one. It could be
0: a friendship. a business partner, a family member,
1: a go- close friend. And a resentment is something that we replay. And it, it's obviously a sense of unfairness associated with some imbalance. Very often there's a story that comes with it, of all the things that we've done versus
0: what happens when we seek attention. So much of relationships
1: are about having a balance of attention between two people. So if there's any relationship in your life where there's this lingering sense that there's an imbalance, that one person is demanding more attention but not
0: offering it in return. Just note that. Allow
1: the feeling to be there, whether it's in the pit of the stomach or the chest or the jaw or wherever you feel it. Just
0: allow it to arise, be there, and to slowly on its its own duration begin to dissipate a little and just ask
1: ourselves what do i need to do so that i wouldn't feel this way and when i ask this reflection i don't encourage this to mean i need to cut off or disappear from this relationship, or turn my back on this person. Boundaries are about neither extreme, continuing
0: the way things are and feeling unseen versus simply
1: turning our back on someone, cutting them off. It's about what would someone
0: who wasn't afraid say so that these
1: feelings would not have to regenerate where there would be a sense of mutuality? Perhaps it's first, what do I need to do to limit the amount of engagement? Or do I need to be clearer and more forthright
0: when I need support or attention? And then how could I calmly express this? for example if we've felt that someone
1: ambushes us ambushes us and then uh,
0: starts on long rambling discourses about frustrating
1: issues in their life but when it's our turn to speak or when we need their attention, they might not be available. They might show disinterest or interrupt. Then first, how can I set boundaries? How much time can I pick and choose when I make myself available and be very clear how much time?
0: I can offer, can I state this feeling of imbalance? And now for the second altogether more
1: enjoyable of the these two practices, I'd like you to,
0: having made a note of anything we might have concluded from that reflection, now put that aside. And imagine
1: you're floating on a very slow moving stream, flowing across all these twists and bends and rocks and stumps, like you're riding down a river on a leaf. You're just floating.
0: And now you can ride that leaf into the future, And suddenly, you're now in a place
1: where you can see yourself maybe 10 years from now, or five years from now, or sometime in the future,
0: where you're more, there's a more confident version of yourself, where
1: any limiting self beliefs or feelings of insecurity have left, where you're not worried
0: about what other people will think if you pursue
1: your needs, you explore and grow without any reservation. And just allow your imagination to show you what this freer, more confident self would be doing. If you can't visualize, just open to this scenario and just ask, what would this future self be doing if they weren't limited by obligations, responsibilities, fears, and especially things that
0: other people in their relationships might say or think. Don't be realistic. Allow yourself in this
1: future state to enact anything that The version of you without fear, a good person without fear would
0: do. And then just make a note of what unmet needs are being actualized in this practice. What is your future self doing that you so far haven't embraced? So at this point,
1: just letting go of that visualization. And when you're ready, taking your time and slowly open your eyes and reorient to the room around you.